Okay. Good to be back with you. Um, let's see. Uh, so last time we were together, uh, I told you to come to church because that's where the angels hang out, right? And the angels hang out in church because that's where Jesus is, and that's because where his brothers and his sisters are, and that would be you, okay? And also, I should throw in because, well, you've got a guardian angel, and your guardian angel goes to church with you, okay? This is all good stuff, okay? So, how could anything go wrong? So, we're going to open up uh, scripture today to 1 Corinthians 11, where we see that though Paul has told them that there are angels in their midst, things are very much going wrong in the church in the city of Corinth. A uh, congregation which uh, Paul had established on his second major missionary journey, and he's writing them to the, writing to them now on his third missionary journey. And he deals at some length with the Lord's Supper, and in the course of that, we hear the words that Jesus said over the bread and the cup at the Last Supper, which is also recorded in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. If it were not the fact that things were going so terribly wrong in Corinth, in church, we probably would have very little in the New Testament about the Lord's Supper itself. There are hints, allusions to it. I even suggested that from uh, Hebrews last time, but it's really this large section of 1 Corinthians 11 where we have a discussion about Holy Communion. Okay. So, let's just read it. In the following instructions, I do not commend you, because when you come together, it's not for the better, but for the worse. For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear there are divisions among you. And I believe it in part, for there must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. When you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper that you eat. I should just pause there brief. I don't think he's using that phrase, Lord's Supper, as a technical term. He's saying this, this is supposed to be the Lord's Supper, but something else is getting in the way of it. Uh, because as, we, as we'll see, they are indeed eating the body and blood of Christ. So that's not the issue. It's not the Lord's Supper that you eat, for in eating each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry, another gets drunk. We're in church. What, don't you have houses to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? Shall I commend you? No. Hmm, the big issue is here is that those who have nothing are being humiliated. And the end result is that one goes hungry and another gets drunk. And then we have Paul reciting the words that we hear each Sunday, of course, over the bread and the cup. Um, and then I go to the third paragraph. Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself and then so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. Anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body, we'll have to ask what he means by that, 
and drinks, drinks, eats and drinks judgment on himself. That is why many of you are weak and ill, and some have died. But if we judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined, so we may not be condemned along with the world. So then, here's the punchline. My brothers, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. If any is hungry, let him eat at home, so that when you come together, it will not be for judgment. About other things, I'll give directions when I come. So, uh, the bottom line at, at the end of all this is just uh, you guys can't get your act together, so let's just not having any eating and drinking in church at all, other than the body and blood of Jesus. Okay. It will take a while for the, perhaps the Corinthians and certainly other churches to hear of Paul's advice here and separate a meal from the bread and the wine used for Holy Communion. Embedded in all this is table etiquette and how people eat and proper decorum. And then just a whole matter of class distinction that Christianity is trying to break into and destroy. And Paul, at least, is having a tough time of getting that accomplished. That whole bit about the etiquette and decorum of eating together and class distinction we see all over the Gospels in a passage like the one I've quoted at the bottom of the page there from Luke 14 where uh, Jesus noticed how the guests picked the places of honor at the table. They're always trying to find the best seats kind of thing because that's how the Mediterranean world worked in terms of communal eating together. So if you flip the page, okay, I gave you some pictures. We know that at the Last Supper, in the upper room, before Jesus' arrest, Jesus and the apostles ate together, of course, and the Gospels tell us that they were reclining at table. So they're eating in Roman fashion. So even though this is a very Jewish thing, the Passover, the mode of gathering, what it looks like, the logistics, are the Roman fashion of reclining at a meal. And the kind of place where they would recline at a meal was called a triclinium. Incline, clinium, tri meaning Three, it's a three-couched room. We call it the dining room. And I gave you a picture of what one at Pompeii looked like there. Uh, so you have lined down on those sloped sides there. In the middle, that's, that's not a bench for sitting. That's uh, where the dirty dishes go. There would have been a table shoved in that empty space there. Everybody's going to lie on their side. Uh, doesn't look very comfortable. That's because that way it certainly wouldn't be. They would be full of cushions. Cushions. So you can gather from the size that might have accommodated three or four per side. So generally a triclidium uh, companies maybe 12 to 15 there, thereabout. They have discovered, uh, archaeologists have discovered very large ones that are outdoor triclidiums that accommodate many, many people. Typical Roman house to the, to the right of it. Um, uh, the kind of house that a, that a Christian gathering like the one in Corinth uh, might be using. 
So someone who has a larger home would open it up for the Christians to use on, on a Sunday. There's a definite pecking order uh, at a triclinium about who gets what spot. And this is the kind of thing Jesus is trying to break through and Paul is trying to bro break through all this kind of stuff. So uh, I've given you another little diagram there of uh, uh, your level of guests, if, if you will. On the left side, that middle uh, line with the dot, that would be someone's body line with the round thing, the head. That would be the, uh, the host, okay? And then to the left uh, would be the guest of honor. And, at, and on to the right would have been the uh, best friend of the host, right there. We think the arrangement at the Last Supper, of course, would have been Jesus on that left couch in the middle with Judas as the guest of honor. Hmm. And John, the beloved disciple, leaning into Jesus' breast. Peter is totally on the opposite side. He's got the worst spot imaginable. So he has to ask John, motion him, tell us who Jesus is talking about when he makes the announcement, one of you will betray me. So. Um, all of this is just ingrained in, in culture. You know, your position at the table is a statement about who the host considers to be on top. Now, the, uh, the, the ritual about eating and drinking, okay, uh, the Jews, of course, are doing it. We think of the Passover meal at the Last Supper, but every Sabbath evening had a communal meal as well. Often we're hearing about Jesus, you know, go, going around and he accepts invitations. Jesus accepts invitations to anybody's house for supper. A Pharisee as well as the tax collectors and sinners. Uh, he goes to both. Uh, what happens at the Sabbath evening, Seder service uh, in, in the home is simply a, a stripped down Passover meal. Um, and I sort of give you the basic outline there. A preliminary course where you've got a blessing of a cup, Blessing for the Sabbath day, blessing of the bread, the breaking of the bread, and then perhaps some teaching at the table. So that's when Jesus would have been doing the teaching. Extensive teaching and ritual at a Passover, but this is stripped down. Then we've got the meal, and when the meal is over, the blessing after the meal, with, and then the blessing of a second cup. And it's of that cup then where we say the cup after supper. He says, this is the New Testament in my blood. So what's happening? What's happening back in 1 Corinthians 11? That's the kind of situation that we have there. We have, we have a normal meal in the kind of Jewish fashion, and we've got the bread for the Lord's Supper before the meal, the cup that's blessed after supper, the blood, of, the blood of Christ. But there's got to be a meal in the middle. And that's the problem there in Corinth. Some are getting drunk, and that would imply that, well, where's, where's this wine coming from that they're going to get drunk on? It's at the meal, okay? It's certainly not in the chalice for the Lord's Supper, which happens after the supper. So the meal, and if if there are individuals who are going to leave church hungry, why would that be? Think in terms of a potluck supper. 
Sometimes it worked that way. Sometimes the host provided everything. Could work both ways, potluck or the host says, eh, I don't have to bring nothing, I'll, I'll, I'll provide it all. If some are hungry, why is that? They ran out. Okay. Or they didn't bring anything. I'm gonna have a follow-up question. Why didn't they bring anything? Because they didn't have anything, okay? What's supposed to happen at a potluck? Yeah, you're all supposed to have your KFC on your own table and not share? No, <laughs> no, okay. Ah, <laughs> oh, so this, you know, that's what's happening there, okay? Class distinctions. I think it's embedded in, in the whole arrangement of a triclinium of the, how the dining room looked, okay? So if you are in this villa that I got a picture of there on top of page two, uh, those who do not have the uh, ability to bring food because they are too poor, I guarantee you before they became Christians, they've never been to that house before because this is a more upper class dwelling. If you're in the category of those who have previously been invited to that house and are now Christians and are coming there and you're coming there for a meal, you're gonna head for the triclinium. So that's where you go. That's where you've always been served. Now, let's say you've got 50 people in your church. I don't know how many are here right now, but uh, I would say the most, most triclinium's back in the day are far smaller than this space that we're in now, far, far smaller. Okay. So folks, just logistically, they're gonna have to be somewhere else. So then the first issue with us is who gets the triclinium? Who gets to sit in the dining room for church? Those obviously think uh, who have been to that house before. And that means they're in the upper echelon of the economic status of the folks. So, Paul's dismay here is that they're coming together and uh, his dismay is not that they don't believe that this bread is the body of Christ and that the chalice is the blood of Christ. It's that that has not translated into the body of Christ, which is the church. So it's kind of a play on words that Paul has here um, in, in his advice. It's difficult at some points to determine whether Paul is talking about the sacrament or whether he's talking about the church as the body of Christ. And I think maybe he means both there. It hasn't filtered all the way through. So some, some are just having too much to drink during the meal, and some are, do not have anything at all. Uh, we are led to believe perhaps that this, this meal, this church meal uh, is taking place in the evening an example of that would be Acts 20 on page 2 there, that uh, famous episode on Paul's journey uh, where he is in Troas and uh, they are gathered on the first day of the week to break bread, to eat, which also means to celebrate the Lord's Supper. Paul talks uh, until midnight and then finally after his long sermon, which ends up with a guy falling asleep in the window and he has to, you know, they have to interrupt the sermon to raise the guy back to life and bring him back upstairs. He continues talking uh, and, uh, and, and finally they have the meal. Finally they have the meal. All takes place in the, in the evening. So what about this whole thing about class distinctions here? Um, 
last two sessions with you, I gave you a couple letters from Pliny the Younger. So one last shot with our friend Pliny here. Uh, in this case, he is not writing to his underling, his client, but he's not writing to the emperor Trajan. He's just writing to his friend. So same status guy. Uh, date on this letter, 97 AD. So within a few decades after Paul had written 1 Corinthians. And he describes a dinner party that he attended and how he thinks he does things better. So, I happened to be dining with a man, though I wasn't really his friend, whose elegant economy, as he called it, seemed to me a sort of stingy extravagance. The best dishes were set in front of himself and a select few, and cheap scraps of food before the rest of his guests. He'd even put the wine into tiny little flasks, divided into three categories, not with the idea of giving his guests the opportunity of choosing, but to make it impossible for them to refuse what they were given. One lot was intended for himself and for us, another for his lesser friends, all his friends are graded, and the third for his and our freedmen, former slaves. My neighbor at the table noticed this and asked me if I approved. I said I did not. What do you do, he asked. I serve the same to everyone, I replied, for when I invite guests it's for a meal, not to make class distinctions. I brought them as equals to the table, so I give them the same treatment and everything. Even the freedmen? Of course, they're my fellow diners, not freedmen. Well, that must cost you a lot. On the contrary, how's that? Because my freedmen do not drink the sort of wine I do, I drink theirs. Believe me, if you restrain your greedy instincts, it's no stain on your finances to share with others the fare you have yourself. Hmm. Does Pliny make class distinctions? So when he throws a party, what determines what he serves? The kind of guests he has at his party. So if he has some former slaves, He's not bringing out the $100 bottle of Chardonnay. No, everybody gets the box wine. Okay? Okay? Okay. You can throw a party just great. Just, just invite one slave. Okay, I've got to bring it all down. Okay? Yes, okay, Pliny has made class distinctions. Now, this is the very kind of thing that Paul is trying to break into and say should not happen at the Christian table but it's just so instinctive in society to do so. Um, there's no distinctions, no Jew, no Greek, no slave, no free, that Paul talks about several times in, in his letters. Um, we do see it catching on. Um, so uh, we, we had a, a baptism gloriously at the uh, 8.30 liturgy, right? In, in, in the early church, uh, the, uh, the various uh, Christian writers uh, emphasize that uh, when those who are preparing for baptism during the season of Lent, they're going to be baptized at the uh, Easter vigil. So when, when you come together, he reminds them, he tell, tells them, you all stood there, you came during, during the week for, for instruction, but mostly for, for prayer and exorcism beforehand, and he emphasized, you all stood there just alike. 
you all stood there and got the same prayer, the same exorcism, whether you were the mayor of the town or you were just a, a, a beggar with absolutely nothing, you have the same thing. I also emphasize uh, that when you come to the Lord's Supper and stand in, in line to go up and receive the body and blood of Christ, it's, it's always emphasized you, you are not given preferential treatment because you're the mayor of the town. Oh, please go first in line. You stand aligned with everybody. So. Um, the, the early church tries to take Paul's words to heart in that way um, and remove the, the class distinctions. We are all brothers. We're all part of one family, the body of Christ. Okay. So I'll stop and see if there are any questions, thoughts, reactions to that. Yes? They used to eat before the Eucharist. Eucharistic fa fasting is, is, the, is the question. I'm not sure exactly when that comes in. We do see a, a really early Christian document is a, it's a document called the Didache. It's a church manual, a how to do it book, uh, how to baptize, what kind of water to use, and what prayers to say at the Lord's Supper. So a book like that. You know, in there, it does say, uh, to my knowledge, it doesn't say anything about fasting before the Lord's Supper, but it does say, prior to baptism, the one being going to be baptized and the one who doing the baptism and any others who can should fast for two or three days before the baptism. Okay. So one might think that the, by inference that would apply to receiving the Lord's Supper. But so there's the earliest reference to uh, fasting in a ritual sense uh, as opposed to a just a certain day for fasting. Yeah. To my, so to, beyond that, I, I, mean, I can't really grab hold of something. Anything else? Okay. We do have, okay, this thing about the meal, however, which folks need to eat and Christians like to eat and we like to eat together. So even though Paul says, back on page one there. Um, if anyone is hungry, let him eat at home, okay? If you guys can't get your act together, okay, and share the food with those who have none, okay, then better all of you have none for this time that we are in church, okay? Let's bring it down to that, okay? Um, which I, I don't think necessarily is uh, where he wanted to go, but he's got so many problems going on with what's, going wrong in Corinth that, you know, let's, let's try this. So eventually, of course, it ends up the way we have it now, the, where the only thing we have to eat in church is the body and blood of Jesus. But for a long time, the church still wanted to do the meal. They just separated it from Holy Communion. Some parts of the church should happen later on in the day, we heard a hint of that last time when I gave you a quote, oh, who did I give it from? Um, well, oh, it was, it was in that letter, the, the, that letter of uh, Pliny to Trajan, where whether, whether Pliny was accurately reporting things or not, but he was telling Trajan what he had heard Christians do, and he said they get together for some prayers in the morning, but then they're gonna come back for a meal in the evening. 
and somewhere in there is the Lord's Supper. So uh, I don't know that Pliny really is grabbing and telling everything that really occurs in his circles among Christians, but he's, he's heard bits and pieces of stuff. So there is this, still this evening meal, and we do have some uh, more than hints of what Christians do at this meal. Um, page three, we have a defense of Christianity written by a guy named Tertullian, and this is from 197. He's from Carthage. Uh, Tertullian never gets an ST period in front of his name because he goes through various uh, stages of uh, or being Orthodox Christian, then he kind of wanders away and joins this sect of the Montanists, and you know, which is not Christian. Um, uh, so you have to kind of look at where his writings come, come from. But this, this seems to be from his Orthodox period. Okay. Um, and uh, he is writing here to defend Christianity to someone who either doesn't know much about Christianity uh, or is thinking totally wrong about it. And he goes on at quite some length here to justify the Christian supper. So this is a non-Eucharistic Christian supper that still has religious overtones to it. So it's not just a gathering where people, you know, have you know, fellowship, so, so to speak, as Lutherans like to use the term. Okay, but it does definitely have a ritual element to it, which is which dovetails with what goes on in the non-Christian pagan world. Uh, Folks are members of various groups. If you've got a particular occupation, you've got, you're probably a member of some guild and you'll get together periodically for suppers together. There are different societies that will come together to eat. And all of that has some ritual baggage to it, religious baggage to it, things that are, that are done. In, in the pagan world, you're gonna say prayers to the various Roman gods and, and, and that kind of thing. And, uh, it, uh, at these meals, which uh, the Greeks called uh, symposia, basically a drinking party is what it, what it is. It, now, now, now we use that for, uh, to describe uh, you know, scholarly gatherings where we're giving papers, they're going to the symposia. Okay? Where's the booze? Uh, is, uh, um, in Greek, it's the dipnon, is the Greek term for it. Um, so, that's part and parcel. So that the eating and drinking and discussing and talking uh, at, the, at these gatherings, there's usually somebody doing a reading, maybe a recitation from Homer or something, right? Okay, so there's some, some, some form of entertainment and then some drinking. The Romans do it a little bit different than the, than the Greeks in terms of when the booze is served, but uh, um, all that sort of thing. So everybody knows what goes on in those things. And if you were, to add, if you were back in the day uh, to ask someone, well, Compare Christians to something in terms of their ritual, their liturgy, what does it look like? They would probably say, well, it's sort of like one of those kind of gathers. It's sort of like a symposium because they're eating and there is drinking of some kind. Um, you know, there, it's, it's not like going to the Temple of Zeus. It's, it's not like the pagan temples because it's not that kind of religious activity. So it's more like the meal thing. So here's Tertullian. My business at present is to justify the Christian supper. And the nature of this supper you may understand by its name, for it is the Greek word for love, agape. We Christians think that we never can be too expensive. 
because we think all is gain that is laid out in doing good. When therefore we are in charge of an entertainment, it is to refresh the bowels of the needy. So he's using that same language of entertainment. Okay, we're getting together to help the needy. But not as you gorge those parasites among you who glory in selling their liberty or stuffing their guts and confined in their hearts to cram their bellies in spite of, the, of all that affronts you can lay upon them. We feed the hungry because we know God takes a particular delight in seeing us do it. If therefore we feast only with such brave and excellent designs, I leave for you from hence to guess at the rest of our discipline in matters of pure religion. Nothing earthly, nothing unclean has ever admittance here. Our souls ascend in prayer to God before we sit down to eat. And we eat only what suffices nature and drink no more than what is strictly becoming chaste and regular persons. We sup as servants that know we must wake in the night to the service of our master. So he brings one of Jesus' parables there. And, so, uh, and discourse as those who remember that they are in the hearing of God. When supper is ended, and we have washed our hands, and the candles are all lighted up, everyone is invited forth to sing praises to God, either such as he collects from the Holy Scriptures, or such as are of his own composing. And by this you may judge uh, of the measures of drinking at a Christian feast. And as so we began, so we conclude all in prayer, and depart not like a parcel of heated bullies, <laughs> for scouring the streets and killing and ravishing the next, next we meet, but with the same tenor of temperance and modesty we came, as men who have not so properly been a drinking as imbibing religion. So uh, he's, trying, he's trying to say we do things different at our Christian party. Um, next page at the very end of that uh, rather famous little uh, section there. Uh, He's trying to break through all, all the rumors. Uh, if the Tiber overflows and Nile does not, if heaven stands still and withholds its rain and earthquakes, if famine or pestilence take their marches through the country, the word is, away with these Christians to the lion. Bless me. What, so many people to one lion? Pray tell me what havoc, what a mighty fall of people has been made in the world in Rome before the reign of Tiberius, that is, before the advent of Christ. Okay, so it's a very long document, but this is, so there is this, there's still this uh, gathering of, uh, of, of the meal to eat, and he specifically refers to it as the agape. Um, there is in the uh, New Testament, uh, I believe it's the letter of Jude, that refers to love feasts, agape feasts. And scholars debate whether that's the Lord's Supper or whether it's this kind of a supper, apart from the, uh, the Lord's Supper. Maybe only a decade and a half after that, we have this other document from uh, Rome uh, by Hippolytus, um, he writes a document of generally called the Apostolic Tradition. Hippolytus uh, Hi thought that he was the legitimate bishop of Rome, but there was a rival who was in the spot. And, uh, and the rival apparently was uh, attempting to make some changes in Rome. And 
Hippolytus writes this document saying, this is the way we've always done it here. Let's keep doing it this way. So I'm glad he wrote the document because what this does is it gives us a, an insight as to what, at least from his perspective, they've always been doing in Rome, okay, up to the year 215. So this is, from that point alone, very important. Uh, it has the earliest use of the Eucharistic prayer, which are embedded the words of Jesus over the bread and the wine. Um, and uh, so I'm going to break in here and uh, take a look at towards the end of his document, where he describes what happens on Sunday, but in the evening. This is, this is following the divine service. The deacon shall be diligent in bringing the oblation, means Holy Communion, to the sick. So reference here very early on, okay, those who are not able to come to the Christian gathering for the Lord's Supper, the deacons are to take the Lord's Supper to them, just as we do it today. Um, and it's the deacons who do that, it says, if there is no presbyter, no pastor available to do so. When the deacon has been given as much as is necessary to commune them, receiving according to how much needs to be given out, he shall give thanks and they shall eat there, like in their home. Then, shifting a few hours later, when the evening has arrived, with the bishop present, the deacon shall bring in a lamp. The bishop, standing in the midst of all the faithful present, shall give thanks. But he shall first greet all by saying, the Lord be with you. And the people shall respond, Then the bishops will say, let us give thanks to the Lord, and the people shall respond. It is offering just, greatness and exaltation But he shall not say, lift up your hearts, hmm. because that's said for the oblation, for the Holy Communion. So there's distinctions, even in terms of these greetings, these ritual greetings that they know so well, okay, they're leaving out one, okay, so that the folks aren't confused between this meal and what we had earlier in the day, the Lord's Supper. So in the Lord's Supper, that middle exchange, uh, lift up your hearts, we lift them up unto the Lord, right? So that's not used here, he says. Then he's got a prayer. We give thanks to you, O God, through your Son, Jesus Christ our Lord, because you have enlightened us by revealing the incorruptible light. Okay, so it's a prayer about the, uh, now Jesus is the light of the world. Okay. We, since now we do not lack a light for evening through your grace, we sanctify you and glorify you. Okay. Uh, in LSB, there is the order of uh, the service of evening prayer. This is the origin of it, which begins with a service of light and then has a prayer very similar to what we've got here in Hippolytus. Um, so, the origin of evening prayer is really this, this meal. Uh, all the folks say amen. And uh, what he doesn't tell us about is the meal itself. Well, he says, after the meal. Uh, but it's very much like Tertullian. After the meal, they shall get up and pray. I love this. And the children shall sing songs along with the virgins. Uh, the virgins here, this would be uh, uh, young girls, right? Some like 12 and under. 
Afterwards, the deacon holding the mixed cup of the oblation shall say a psalm from among those in which is written Alleluia. Those are Psalms 111 to 118. This comes straight out of the, the, uh, the Passover Seder. Uh, it says in the gospel, uh, the gospel of John that uh, uh, after they had sung a hymn, they went to the Mount of Olives. Well, we know exactly what hymn they sang. It's Psalms you know, 111 through 118, the Hallel Psalms, the Hallelujah Psalms. So they, that continues. We're in, we're in 215 here. They're still, still doing that, okay. Um, then if the presbyter orders it more from the same psalms, keep singing. After this, the bishop shall offer the cup, saying one of those psalms appropriate to the cup, of, all of which shall include Alleluia. When the psalms are recited, all shall say Alleluia. And when the psalm is completed, he shall bless the cup and give the pieces of bread to all the faithful ones. So same uh, Sabbath evening litur liturgy is still going on here in Rome. When they dine, the faithful present shall take from the hand of the bishop a small piece of bread before taking their own bread because it's blessed. Yet, makes, makes the point here, yet it is not the Eucharist like the body of the Lord. Um, so this Concerted dis uh, distinction is made, but Christians still are doing the meal, okay? Uh, this, will, this will disappear probably quite soon after what Hippolytus is uh, writing here. Certainly by the fourth century, we don't quite see this kind of thing anymore. So this is, the, this is all the, the kind, of, kind of stuff that uh, the Christians are they're trying to preserve, and they're, and they're trying to uh, em emphasize that uh, there are no distinctions when we get together as, as the body of Christ. We all need to share. We all, we all, no one better leave hungry here. And that's also then tied to make sure that those who aren't able to be here, the sick, or those who we refer to often as shut in, okay, they can't come to the gathering, that they receive the body and blood of the Lord too. And along with that would certainly be providing for their other physical needs. As, as well. As we, uh, we see in the, in the early church, even in the uh, church in Jerusalem, in the, in the book of Acts, uh, it, is, it is said that one of the first controversies was that the Christian, some of the Christian widows were not getting the daily distribution of bread, and only on the basis of what language they spoke. Some spoke Aramaic Hebrew, some spoke Greek, and the widows who spoke Greek were being denied. And so it's on that grounds that the apostles come up with a committee. We usually call them the first deacons to make sure that no one goes without. Questions, thoughts from anyone? I'll end here with this from uh, Arthur Carl Peepcorn, Missouri Synod theologian, went to the Lord in 1973. The life of God in the parish implies an end of commercialism in the financial affairs of the parish. If we cook, it will be for the hungry. If we sew, it will be for the needy. If we collect clothes, it will be for the ill-clad. If we eat, it will be for the joy of being together as children of God and not to raise funds for him who is the creator and owner of the world's wealth. The kingdom of God is not buying one another's pies but in being faithful stewards of the gifts which the God has bountifully endowed even the poorest. The problem of parish finance is not getting into people's purses, but getting God 
into people's hearts. Okay. I like that. All right. Lord, remember us in your kingdom and teach us to pray. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. Amen.